Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody uh, here today. Um, I got good news. I'm only going to be, be preaching on one verse today. Bad news is it's going to take me a while to get through it. <laughs> uh, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verse 12, uh, primarily in our time together. My um, children, like your children, when, when my, my, my children were young, loved those picture books, you know, uh, where we'd flip it open and, Daddy, what, what's that? Well, that's, that's Noah's Ark. What's that? I don't know. I think it might be two giraffes, I'm guessing. That, that's probably Noah and his wife. You know, and they just... Ask, we love picture books, but you know, I've never gotten over picture books. I love pictures, don't you? And one of the things I find in the Bible is the Bible is filled, not with literal pictures, but with word pictures all over the place. If you start in Genesis and go all the way through, it's unbelievable. You come to the Psalms, which, which we love, it is just filled with pictures. You come to the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he's trying to explain, like, what's the kingdom of heaven? He says, well, the kingdom of heaven is like. And what does he do? He paints pictures of it for us, doesn't he? So it's all the way through. The, the Old Testament prophets, they did even more. They, they, they enacted pictures, didn't they? Object lessons. They would literally lay down on one side and lay on the other, throw hair in the air, cut it, and do all kinds of things. Because they know that you and I are visual learners. We can't really live it if we can't see it. Well, what I'd like to do this morning is focus in on one particular picture that we find in Hebrews 4. It's, it's of, of the Bible, the Word of God. It, it, if you read through the, the scriptures, there's all kinds of pictures for the Bible. In Psalm 119, we read about the Bible as a lamp and a light. Jeremiah says it's, it's like a hammer. It just smashes things, you know, pretty graphic. Peter tells us, I want you to de desire the word as if you were newborn babes going after milk. So all the way through the scriptures, we have these pictures. What the word of God is like blank, and it gives us these visual pictures. Today, though, I want to pick up on the one here in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, I'm going to try something a little bit different this morning. We're going to try uh, a PowerPoint. All right, I, I, I do it sometimes, not other times. And so if you don't remember anything else, remember that the word runs deep and wide, which you don't even know what I'm talking about until the end, but that's okay. We, we, we'll, we'll get to that. Let me, uh, let me read the passage to you. I know it's a familiar passage, but hear what the Bible says. When the Bible pictures the word, what does it say? For the word of God is... Living and active, it's energetic, it's effective, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know what the Bible says first? It says, the Bible is alive. Um... Our uh, senior pastor, when I was growing up of our church, he, he, was a, he was a sailor when he came to faith in Christ. And he was a rough guy. I mean, he was just, 
That's the kind of guy. You ever find people in your life, you say, that guy will never get saved. Everybody that knew him said, you know, Bob Jordan will never get saved. He was just, he was a rough guy. But, um, he, and he did some interesting things. After he became a Christian, he was a sailor, and he, he said he'd come into Philadelphia, and he'd take his little Bible, and he'd put it down on the, right on the sidewalk, and he'd put his hat over it, and he'd start running around yelling and screaming, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive! And, you know, Christian people are like, what in the world is going on here? So everybody's gathering around like, what's, what's going on? And he'd pick it up, and he'd say, the Bible is alive, and he'd start preaching. Now, I've never tried that one. <laughs> don't think I ever will. I mean, it's, just, it's just really not quite me, you know. It's not gonna... and, and, and at that point, I didn't even know that he knew that this verse was in Scripture. But he was on to something. The Bible is alive. Let me show you what I mean by that. Um, it's, okay, this will all make sense. I, I, I don't want to get into the depth of the text in too much detail, but enough so you can understand what in the world I'm talking about. Notice the first word of the text. It's the word for, right? Which means it's, 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 it's explaining something or giving the cause or reason. Look at the previous verse. I told you we didn't have to go into other verses too. But the previous verse says this. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fail through following the same example of disobedience. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, you will notice that the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95 in verses 7 to 11 of Hebrews 3. And here's what's really interesting, folks. Let me just explain this. Hopefully it will make sense. When this text says, for the word of God is alive, what he's actually saying is this. The word which was given for them, either 1,000 or 2,000 years before, depending upon which text you're looking at, he was arguing it is as alive today as it was when it was first given. And you know what he does in this passage? If you read in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, the theme that bubbles up again and again and again is the theme of rest. And he goes back to Psalm 95, and if you read Psalm 95, which is quoted in chapter 3, what he says is, you know what? In David's time, David is still writing to people and he's saying, you know what? You guys haven't entered the rest yet. Because, you know, some Jews would say, no, wait a second. Didn't we enter the rest when we went into the land? I mean, you know, when Moses was opening, didn't go in, but he said, okay, Joshua, go in. You guys are going to enter your rest. Didn't the nation enter the rest then? Well, David says no. And what the writer does is this. The writer goes all the way back to creation because he's going to quote, from Genesis chapter 2. He's going to say, look, on the seventh day, God rested. There was completion. There was harmony in all that God had done. Now, when would that be experienced by people? Well, would it be experienced with the wilderness generation? When the Jews were ready to go into the land? Maybe they'll experience rest. The writer of Hebrews says, look, if you're reading Psalm 95, that can't be. Nope, they're not experiencing rest. Well, maybe, maybe rest will come with David's generation because he's writing Psalm 95. Uh, nope, it's not going to come there either. Well, when does it come? Look for just a second, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 10. The Bible says this. 
For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. I would want to argue that the one there in that verse is Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? From the very beginning, God designed that people would have rest. But the problem is we're all sinners. And so could the nation experience everything God wanted for them apart from Christ? What's the answer, folks? No. And if you read through the old, matter of fact, this is one of the things that's always taken me back. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. They're getting ready to go into the land. And uh, Moses says, look, I'm not going in. God won't let me. Uh, by the way, I just want you to know, you guys are going to go into the land, and you're going to fail. <laughs> and you're going to be dispersed all over the, all over the world. And um, God will bring you back one day when he changes your heart from the inside out. Have a good day. <laughs> I mean, you know, really. I mean, so here, you're, you haven't even started yet, and you're already told you're going to lose. And one of the reasons that is, folks, as you read through the Old Testament, is you find failure after failure after failure. Nobody can enter the rest of God until Christ. And what the writer of Hebrews is arguing is what everybody needs is Christ. You won't find it in the Jewish ceremony. It's just going to be year after year after year the same old thing. But when Christ comes, Christ has entered his rest. And because Christ has entered his rest, the present generation, the Hebrew Christians, us right here, right now in New Jersey, we can enter rest in the future because of our connection to Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, when you see this book, you may be reading about what some prophet said 2,700 years ago. Just like it was for the, writers of he for the readers of Hebrews. This book is alive. It maybe wasn't written to you, but it was all written for you. Notice um, another slide here. Ah, okay. Only to say this. I kind of already said this, I suppose. But, but one of the things that has really, really helped me think my way through the Bible again and again, is what, what we call the Bible storyline. Where you go from creation the way things were. It was great, wasn't it? In creation, I mean, I mean, what could be better? Husband and wife, no roadblocks, wonderful relations, great stuff. The fall is the way things are, folks. We look around, and what does it mean to be sin-cursed, and living in a sin-cursed world as sinners? Here we are, right? But we are people of the gospel. And we believe in redemption the way things can be. Christ comes, he saves us, he forgives us, and he begins to change us. But it's not perfect yet, is it? One day, culmination the way things will be. And the writer of Hebrews, when he writes about rest, he writes about rest along the Bible storyline. So wherever you find yourself in the scripture, it's all moving to Jesus, isn't it? That matter. If you're reading somewhere in the Old Testament, you think, but this is like one bomber. Yeah, it is. And the only hope is Christ. Or if you're reading some prophecy about the king that will come, that's Christ. So everything moves to Jesus. And for us, we now await his second coming, don't we? Uh, next, let's run the next slide. Look at these two verses. Um, 
just again to prove you the whole Bible is written for us. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, these things happen to them as an example, okay? Looking back to the Israelites. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the age has come. Yeah, it was written to them, about them. But do you realize it was written for you? Do you know when the Israelites were going through those experiences, God was thinking of us? Because the Bible is wide, folks. It is broad. And everything that is said back here is for us here. It touches all people at all times in all places. It's wide. Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Isn't that great? Now look, I know it's, some of it's a hard read. Reading through those, chron those uh, genealogies and chronicles, that's tough. Not easy. Leviticus, that's a hard read sometimes, isn't it? Because you read, if I read about one more sacrifice, I like, I've had it. <laughs> I know, I mean, I know. But if you're living in the Old Testament, and you're living week after week, month after month, year after year, everything is about blood and death so that something can be paid for that is so embedded in your mind. And when the fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ, it all makes sense. You see? Everything moves to Jesus. And so the word is wide. Secondly, the word is deep. Notice how the verse continues. Not only is the word active, it, 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 living, it is active or it is effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, here's the picture. Um, the Roman two-edged sword called the gladius, there was actually two types uh, in the ancient world. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter which one, but, but we'll go to the next slide too. We all know this picture, right? We all know this guy. All right. All right. So popularized one of the forms there. But one of the things about the, the, the Roman sword, and, and, and it actually in the second century it changed, it became a little bit longer. But, but in the first century, this was the sword, preferred sword. And with it, the Romans conquered the world. And it was two-edged, which, I, I mean, I don't mean to get too graphic up here. But look, you know, I don't need to go like this, do I? I can just, doesn't matter, man. <laughs> Either way, you know, it's real, it's, it's real nice. Except for the enemy, of course. But, but the Bible says, it doesn't say that the, Bible, that, that the Bible is as sharp as a two-edged sword, does it? It says it's much sharper than a two-edged sword. Notice how the text reads. It's really fascinating to me. It says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow. Now, here's, here's the picture. It's picking up on both the immaterial and the material world. Um, do you know where your soul stops and your spirit begins? I don't have a clue. I mean, when you read about them in the scripture, they're used almost synonymously. And so he's saying, look, this word is so effective 
It can go down to the very core of your soul and it can actually lay open soul and spirit. Wow. And physically, it can go down and you can take your joints and your marrow, things sometimes where you're not quite sure how to even do it. It can just lay that stuff wide open too. Wow, so it goes like really deep. Yeah, yeah. It touches me for who I really am. You got it. And it explains it specifically this way, because this, this becomes his point. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, not only does the word go deep, it covers all people in all ages. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it goes wide. But it goes deep. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it goes all the way down to the very core of who you and I are. Now, um, let's try the next slide. Although that, that, that's, let me, um, let's pop to the next one even after this. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Let me try to explain this to you. Hopefully, it'll make sense. Have I ever shown this to you before? Okay, all right, then let me explain it. The, the, the sun there at the top, that represents um, the pressures of life. Okay, we've all had pressures. You get up, you try to turn on the car, and it doesn't start. <sighs> you know, you come home, and the kids failed that test for the third time. <sighs> you know, whatever. It's the pressures of life, right? We all face them. Notice on the left side, you've got a fruit tree, and on the right side, you've got a bramble bush. Everything above the black line, you see the black lines I've put in there? Everything above the black line would be behavior that you and I can see in the life of others. So why is it that some people can face incredible pressures in their life and they respond on the left side with love and joy and peace and long-suffering? Whereas other people will face the exact same situation and they will respond on the right side with, Hatred and anger and malice and bitterness and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do we do what we do because of the circumstances we face? Is that what the Bible teaches? If it did, then we have no hope. Then we're literally victims of our circumstances. But the power of the gospel tells us, oh no. I do what I do in the circumstances of life because of what's in my heart. And so on the left side, you've got the plus, and on the right side, you've got the minus, and of course, you've got the cross, and the river represents the life-giving work of the Spirit. Okay. Um, now, here's my question. What do you mean by the heart? Yeah, you, you know, what, growing, I've been around Christianity for quite a while. People say, you've got to give God your, your heart. Okay? Like, what's, like what, what's that mean exactly? <laughs> I mean, and you kind of know. It means your whole life. And okay, fair enough. But, but what is involved in the heart? One of the things we find as you read through the scriptures is that the heart, the heart is a major emphasis to God. I don't know if I have any other. Yeah, okay, good. I did do that. The heart, if you're reading in Proverbs 4.23 or Mark 7 or Luke 6, Three different contexts. In each situation, Proverbs 4, the Bible says, keep your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. I mean, it is the very core of who you are. So whatever it is, you better prioritize that heart. It's very, very, very important. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 and again in Luke chapter 6, it's the heart 
that makes all the difference in the world. Okay, Doug, I got gotcha. you. The heart is important. This passage says God goes down and he wants to be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Okay, gotcha. What does that mean? Let's flip to the next slide. Um, in Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible says, when that knife goes down in his word, goes down to the very core of who you are, what it wants to do is it wants to reveal how I think and what I want. And so what you find repeated again and again in Scripture is when you and I think the wrong thing, the Bible calls that a lie. When we want the wrong thing, the Bible calls that a lust. And so the Scripture goes down to the very core of who Doug Finkbeiner is, and it exposes the lies that I believe and the desires, the lusts that I want. It's not just here in Hebrews, though. I want you to go back for just a second. I told you we'd be looking at other passages. For just a second, go back to Romans chapter 1, would you? Romans chapter 1. Look at Romans chapter 1 for just a second. In verse 25. It, it, it's it's when, when, when the Bible, when Paul indicts the world, notice what he says. For they have exchanged the truth of God for what? For a lie. So they, they believe the wrong thing. Rather than come face to face with the true and living God and saying, God, who are you? I have to react, respond to who you are. They say, now I've got to explain him away. So what I'll do is I'll make a God in my own image. Yeah, that'll work. What happens? Notice what it goes on to say. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, he said, God, I want what I want. And so I will worship what I want and I will believe what I want. And you know what happens in Romans chapter 1? God says, if that's what you want, that's what I'll give you. The Bible says he gives them over to the lusts of their heart. And he gives them over to a depraved mind. That's what you want? That's what I'll give you. Now, most of the people sitting in here today are Christians. Christ has come into our lives. He's forgiven us. He's put us on a brand new path. We're moving in a new direction. But we're not perfect people, are we? We still think incorrectly on things. And we still desire wrong things. Let me, um, let me just mention to you a couple of the, uh, the lies that we believe if we're not careful. Here's one. God must not love me because I'm facing bad situations right now. And everybody knows that bad things happen to bad people. Hey, have you ever found, I, I, if I'm driving home today and my car stalls and breaks down or something on the way home, is my first thought, oh God, thank you so much for this opportunity to honor you. I mean, is, that, is, that, is that what you think? First thing, first thing you thought? Not me. No, no. I'm thinking a series of things. <laughs> and one of the things I'm thinking is, I wonder what I did wrong. 
Isn't it, isn't it a kind of our gut feeling? Like, I must have done something wrong. Just like, here, here I am. And, and we have to be very, very careful because when you read through the Bible, you find out many, many times bad things happen to good people. All because I experienced bad doesn't mean... Now, it may be the disciplinary hand of God. Of course, of course. But not necessarily. And people can get locked into this mentality sometimes and believe the wrong thing about God. It's exactly what happened to the psalmist in Psalm 73. So it's what happened to Job. Job believed, look, I thought I was a good guy and bad things are happening, so either I'm a bad person doing bad things or else like God's world is really messed up. What he realized is he was thinking wrong altogether, so God had to change the way he thought. There's one of the lies. Here's another lie. Life is about experiencing good things in life. Pleasure, material gain, oh, what else? Ease, things. Does our world teach us that? I mean, good grief. You turn it on TV, you watch a commercial. Every commercial is about, look, you've got to have this thing and then life will work. If you don't have this thing, you won't be happy. You have this man, you have that burger, you have this car, man, life works. We start thinking about it, it's crazy. But it's true, it's what we're told. And it's easy sometimes to think, look, if I can just accumulate more toys, I'll be a happy guy. And I won't. And I believe, if I believe the wrong things, it will affect the way I live. Because I'll begin saying, God, if you're supposed to be such a good God, why aren't you giving me all these toys? And God looks back and says, I've given you the best. I've given you my son. You say, I better not lean on this. <laughs> if it drops anymore, I'll just sit down here and do it from the floor. We'll see what happens. But, um, but you see what I'm saying? Isn't that what happens in our lives? I found Christians that have become embittered against God because they believed the wrong things. They thought God owed them for something. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. He's given his son for me. So, believing the wrong things. When I work with teenagers sometimes, here's one, and you find it's as old as Genesis 3. I'll get away with it. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that what the devil was telling Eve? Eve, look. If you bite, if you eat of that fruit, you're not going to die. You'll get through. And, and you know what happens sometimes what we do is we, we, we sow our wild oats and we pray for a crop failure. But that's not God's world. <laughs> People pick it up a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but isn't it true? And, and we have to realize, this is God's world. And if I believe the wrong thing, it will affect the way I live my life. And God says, look, I've given you of my word. So I might go down to the very core of your soul, and I might just open you up. And I might say, hey, Doug, what is it that you really believe? Oh, Lord, I, what, like, what am I thinking, Lord? Let me change you there, Doug. Let me do my work at the very core of who you are. Um, notice, notice also this idea of lust. And I think, uh, do I, what, what's the next slide? I don't know if I, no, I don't want to go there yet. Okay, we'll come back. That's fine. That's good. Beware lust, what we desire or want. Now look, 
we, we all know that there's things that are innately sinful in them themselves. You know, so if somebody comes in and says, you know, I just want to murder. We all know, like, I think that's kind of like wrong. Bad desire, change, that kind of thing. Understandable. Um, and if you're struggling with that, let us know. Um, but, but you know where I've been challenged the most in this area? When it comes to lusts, desires, is... The problem in my life so often is not that I want the wrong thing, but I want a natural thing too much. Let me explain. Is it wrong for me to look at you and say, um, you know, I would like to be loved. Does anybody look at me and say, man, you are someone sicko pervert. <laughs> do you? I mean, do you say that? I mean, no, I hope you don't say that. It's like, you know, think when it wants to be loved, like you're weird, you know. You know, if I say, hey, I would like to be respected. Anybody say, man, that guy is like weird. <laughs> no, I see. I mean, don't we want to be loved, appreciated, respected? Are, are they not? Are, these are natural things, are they? And they're not innately sinful, right? It's not wrong to say, I want to be loved. I want to be respected. I like ease. I like comfort. Don't you? Well, you're, unless you're a masochist or something. Yeah. You know what the problem is with those? Nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. It's when they move to the very center of my heart and I worship them more than I worship God. Um, I think I've given you this illustration before, but I give it because it's so graphic in my mind the way God, God just exposed me. Um, I was uh, Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I remember calling my wife up one day on the phone and saying, Sherry, I'm going to be home for supper at 5 o'clock. Could you just have supper ready? Because I have to go back out at 6. I had a visit or I don't matter. I'd do something that night. And, you know, I, I don't remember. I'm sure Sherry said, yeah, I, I should be able to or whatever. So, you know, I'm driving home in the car, you know, driving back, thinking this is going to be great. I'm going to pull in and uh, I'm going to walk in and there's going to be this nice meal on the table and, 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 and we'll sit down, we'll laugh, we'll talk, we'll blow kisses, whatever you do, you know, and all that stuff, you know. And, you know, well, it's great, we'll have a good time and I'll say goodbye, I'll wave and I'll walk out and I'll go visiting, whatever I was doing that night. And it was just, it was, I just, man, I, was, I had this picture in my mind what was going to happen, you know. Now, anything wrong with that? No. No, no, no especially if you're hungry. No, of course not. So I walked in the house, and she hadn't even started supper yet. I mean, there was nothing on the table. <sighs> that really ticked me off. And, um, you know, different people have different strategies. What I will often do is I'll mumble under my breath, loud enough so that you can hear me, but not loud enough so you know what I'm saying. <laughs> you know? And so I think I kind of... Walk, and I normally hug my wife when I come in. I just kind of whisk by her, and I went like, hey, emotional, baby. Emotional. you know, or something, whatever I was doing. I just get doing my thing. And, and, and I went in the other room, and I, I kind of felt bad, because I was a pastor. You know, pastors are not supposed to do this stuff, you know. But um, went in the other room, and I remember saying, hey, look, uh, I'm going to be translating from the Bible, because I was taking a course in Hebrew. I was taking a course in Proverbs and Hebrews, in the Hebrew. So I said, I'll translate from the Bible. I'm just, anyway, I was really ticked off. I just sat down. I said, I cannot believe her. I told her that I'm ready. We have one hour. I have to go back at, you know, all the stuff. Open up the Bible. 
and where am I anyway translating this stuff, you know? And, and I was in Hebrew, I was in Proverbs chapter three. In all your ways acknowledge me. Paraphrased. In every situation of life, ask yourself what it means to know God. Now, was I thinking of God when I walked into the house? <laughs> no. Who was I thinking of? You got it right here. You know? And I was walking into my house and I was saying, Sherry, if life is going to work in this home, we all got to worship at the shrine of Doug's comfort. <laughs> and if you will bow down at my shrine with me and we can just say, holy, holy, holy is his comfort. Man, we will have one great relationship. And because you didn't worship at my shrine, I will play God with you and I will mete out judgment upon you and I will give you the silent treatment because God judges his enemies. Now, did I say any of that? But that's what I was doing. Wasn't I? Nothing wrong with wanting to have supper with my wife. Is there? I mean, I don't think it was anything terribly unreasonable. And, and I shouldn't have walked in the house and said, praise the Lord, supper's not ready. Now, that's weird. Now, come on. Now, nobody does that either. Come on. That wouldn't have been, I mean, that, that, it, it, for me, that would have been disingenuous. Okay? I just wonder. But I should have walked into the house and blessed my wife in the name of Christ regardless. Been honest about my frustration found out maybe what happened during her day, why it wasn't ready on time. You know, didn't even stop and think about that one. Because when I was going in, all I could think about was, Doug, 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 Doug. <laughs> it's true. And what gets so subtle when it comes to this area is that we take natural desires and we worship them more than the true and living God. That's what happens. And when we do that, everything goes crazy. And Hebrews says, I want to go down to the very core of your soul. And you know, when I was reading that passage in Proverbs 3, it was like God just stuck a knife in my heart. But it hurt good. You know? And I got up and I went in the other room and I asked my wife to forgive me. Not because she didn't have supper ready, but because the way I responded was anything like Christ. And God wants to go down to the very core of who we are and he wants to open us up and he says, what is it that you believe? What is it that you want? Not that you necessarily want evil things. You want those too. <laughs> but what is it that you want more than me? Because God wants us to come to that place where, we, where the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Lord, besides you, I desire nothing in heaven and earth. Isn't that what he wants? And God says, I've given you this to do that. It's his grace to us, isn't it? Do you notice what the next verse says in Hebrews 4? It says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know what he's saying in verse 13? He's saying, look, Doug, God has already fully seen you for who you are. He knows everything about you. He's given you his word so he might help you to see that now so you don't have to wait till then. 
It is God's merciful grace to us that he's given us his word. And he says, it is far sharper than any two-edged sword. I mean, it goes down to the very core of who you are, and it lays you bare to see what it is that you believe and what it is that you want. And folks, does anybody here like surgery? Not me. My uh, father um, had surgery a couple of weeks ago for colon cancer. And uh, they think they got it all, but, but you know, they went and took like two feet of his uh, uh, colon out and was able to reattach everything. I, I, I don't know how they do it. I'm not getting all that, but, you know, they do all that stuff. But, you know, we weren't like jolly jolly going into that thing. Like, hey, this is going to be great, you know, a colon cut off. And, hey, this would be wonderful. But, but you know what we realized? He would die without it. If there was any hope, we had to go through the surgery. And God says, look, I give you my word. It doesn't always feel good. But it hurts good. And it's for your good. And it's for your transformation. That you might become more like Christ, the God's son. You see? And this is God's great gift to us. So what might we say? The word is wide enough to include all people in all time periods. It is alive. It may have been written to them, but it's written for us. The word is deep enough to expose the idolatry of our hearts. It's effective. In the last slide. God wants us to orient all of our lives to the word because it is both relevant and revealing. If that's the case, how do we do that? Well, you're here, <laughs> and that's part of it, isn't it? Know it, love it, obey it, share it. I mean, Spurgeon used to say, if you cut open a Christian, they ought to bleed Bible. Somewhat graphic, I suppose. But, but the point is, I've got to come to the place where this is always around me. So, so I open it up, I, I read it, I memorize it, I listen to it by audio. Whatever I have to do, I get the word in. I come to church to hear preaching and to hear teaching because I want to get the word in. God, I need your word. I need that sword to go down deep and expose me. And God, you've given it to me. Thank you, Lord. Do your work. So I don't know what it means specifically for you to take that next step. But allow this book to become your obsession. Would you do that? Know it, love it, obey it, share it, do it, whatever else you need to put on that list. Let's pray.